Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, we have 321 Go with Cosmo Macero. Then, an interview with Richard Doherty, president of ACOM here in Massachusetts. And in Two Minutes with Tom, Tom discusses the New York Times recent editorial of Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar for the Democratic nominee for president. First up, 321 Go. Let's talk about something important. Welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, business, culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macera. In this installment of 321 Go, we look at the phenomenon of political hobbyists, otherwise known as college-educated voters. And Jamie Dunbar and Hugh Drummond talk about the State of the State Address by Governor Charlie Baker. Finally, We'll look at the growing feud between Aerosmith drummer Joey Kramer and the rest of his bandmates who have effectively banned him from joining them at the Grammy Awards. Joining me here on 321 Go is Suzanne Morse. Good afternoon, Cosmo. Filling in for Kyan Isaacson, <laughs> the official voice of OA on air. Suzanne, great to have you. I always enjoy being on 321 Go. Thank you very much. All right, let's get to it. All right. All right, Suzanne, let's start off with this piece in The Atlantic. College-educated voters are ruining American politics. That is a provocative headline. Yes. It got me. I got right into it. And uh, it's funny, right in the first paragraph, the analogy just kind of jumps out at you. They basically say that many college-educated people who think they are deeply engaged in politics are about as engaged as someone watching sports center is and playing football. Right. And they're referred to as political hobbyists, yep. which I find fascinating. And I immediately recognize what they're talking about. Yeah. Your thoughts? Well, first, I think it's really important to uh, point out that in general, he's actually talking about college-educated white voters, which the headline doesn't really uh, spotlight, but that's who he's talking about. Um, I should say... An important distinction. Yeah. yeah. And I should say, and you know this because, of course, we've worked together for a long time, but I wrote my uh, master's thesis on the civic engagement of young people. So I spent a lot of time steeped in some of the things that he talks about here. And In other words, I've come to the right place. <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, there's one part of his premise that um, I'm not sure I entirely agree with. I mean, the social science research... Um, persistently and consistently has said that the more that you talk about politics and the more that you are engaged with reading about politics, et cetera, the more likely you are to be politically engaged, by which it means you're more likely to vote, you're more, more likely to donate to a candidate, et cetera. He's talking more about political organizing. And on this, you know, he's right that there has been uh, a dec- several decades long slide of community engagement, of people being involved at their community level in organizing or in sort of effecting change at the local level, which is where often a lot of um, change really happens that's meaningful to everyone's day-to-day lives. <clears throat> circling, or not circling back, but, but moving into one other <clears throat> sort of recurring topic yeah. for you and I, he points out that <clears throat> these very voters yeah. are not the ones consuming local news local news yeah no and that's a huge problem which is, which is 
absolutely gets you engaged in politics yep. at the local level, yep. about as grassroots as it can get. Absolutely. And they're just up here, you know, again, treating the political system like another form of entertainment, which, by the way, that's exactly what it's become. That's what it's become, yeah. Um, and, and not just during this presidential cycle, but, but, but indeed... Um, in fact, not at all. But indeed, that, that's kind of what it's become. It's just yeah. that constant chatter, whether it's on even before Facebook, but certainly. But certainly, social media. Social has added media to has it, absolutely yeah. accelerated that dynamic. And I think that where I really, really agree with him is, and I've had this discussion with uh, with friends and colleagues and and clients. Um, people people do not understand that tweeting something or posting something to Facebook, as important as it is, and I'm not saying that it isn't, it's not activism. It is not. Activism comes with sacrifice and hard work that is often boring and behind the scenes, and it doesn't get the instant gratification, and it requires compromise. And a lot of people think, oh, if I put this out on Facebook or if I tweet this, I'm done with my activism for the day. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, uh, Someone I've, I've been fortunate to become friendly with or friends with, a former guest here on OA On Air, uh, and also the president of the Greater Boston, uh, of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston, yeah. and the New England Patriots Foundation, Josh Kraft, did a piece about a year and a half, two years ago for the Boston Globe. And it wasn't about political activism and engagement, yeah. but it was related to uh, civic engagement and, and, right. and essentially social service and, and, and doing good in your community. And it was the same point. Yeah. Uh, and I think his catchphrase is, if, if you could say something, you could actually do something. Yeah, that's which right. Is a good one. And the, the, the point being... Just because you're posting about some worthy cause right. doesn't really mean you're doing anything because right. you're not. Right. And I mean, you're just extending your kitchen table conversation exactly. to the rest of the world. And that kind of conversation is important, <laughs> yeah. but it only goes so far and it has to be followed up with action. And we work with different kinds of advocates, you know, clients who are doing advocacy work. We, we see the kinds of hard work that they have to do behind the scenes. And so that is something that that's where this article really resonated with me. And then I think, you know, the other point that did really resonate with me, and I think it is worth uh, pointing out because, you know, as I said at the beginning, he's really talking about college educated white voters. You know, there, there are a lot of people who are sort of acting as political hobbyists who are paying very much attention as to what's going on in DC and they should, um, but they aren't necessarily doing the kind of work that they need to do in the neighborhoods that are close to them with their neighbors or or they're not necessarily working with you know activists in the african-american community or the latino community etc where they could be affecting change and and i think he's right on that you know i think that that there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done in people's backyards that doesn't get done because it's easier to be you know posting on facebook about trump or whatever yeah so so yeah terrific insight suzanne thanks so much thank you All right, up next here is Jamie Dunbar and Hugh Drummond talking about the state of the state this week by Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker. So, Jamie, the uh, state of the state was this week. Um, You were monitoring it. So what'd you hear? Yeah, well, first I want to point out, I think the whole speech was maybe 36 minutes. Uh, So talk about one of the reasons why he's uh, the country's most popular governor. (laughs) Succinct and to the point. Uh, Didn't keep people in their seats too long. But no, that, that, that's kind of what, what we heard, actually, was uh, a very succinct message 
uh, about uh, capping off some of the accomplishments that this uh, administration has had over the last five years, but more importantly, the direction in which they want to go in the coming uh, three, three or four more remaining. Who knows? Maybe they'll uh, uh, extend it beyond that that term and timetable as well. But uh, that remains to be seen. But certainly, you know, transportation, environment, housing, some of the largest bond bills to either be proposed and or passed. Um, uh, tackling these issues uh, were, were mentioned and uh, are very important to not only uh, people today in the Commonwealth, uh, but it's all about, uh, you know, Governor Baker clearly is committed to setting up the future uh, and for young people to be educated, to stay in a workforce here in Massachusetts and be able to afford uh, to live um, uh, and remain uh, in the Commonwealth. And um, Governor Baker is known for his ability to and skills to work across party lines. I know he had some special messages around the, that, too. He did. Uh, a number of times he, he mentioned uh, finding common ground, and we're very fortunate uh, in this uh, state that we live in that we have a, a level of decorum and civility uh, among, given that we have a two-party system as far as a very you know heavily uh, heavy majority uh, Democratic uh, legislature, but then uh, uh, a Republican governor, and and they they really get along well. And and he and he reminded folks that we need to stay above kind of the national and social media fray that you see. Find the common ground on these major issues, uh, knowing that clearly there's going to be compromise. And unfortunately, compromise is a, a four-letter word in, in many other corners of this nation. But uh, we're very fortunate here in the Commonwealth to have. Uh, uh, great folks leading us. And Jamie, so the governor laid out his priorities. Now what happens? Yeah, so the next step really are about um, uh, funding them and finding those common grounds and what aspects of them uh, are uh, is all leadership and state government going to work on to carry them out. Um, and so that's everything from bond bills coming up before the end of this legislative calendar year. Uh, the, the governor released his budget to match those priorities of his and now uh, uh, the legislature will take that under advisement, put out their budgets, and uh, they'll have a healthy debate on what aspects that they're going to fund uh, to carry uh, carry out that message that he so eloquently uh, and succinctly delivered to us uh, Tuesday night. Well, Jamie, thanks for coming by the studio. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. All right, Suzanne, let's talk about... One of the beloved Boston rock and roll acts of all time, Aerosmith. Yep. Uh, a, a, a tremendous history. Uh, uh, the majority of it uh, hugely successful and wonderful. Some of it, some of it negative. Um, but uh, and, and you know what? When you're a rock star or you're a rock and roller and you're getting up there, your 60s and yeah. 70s, these guys got osteoarthritis. Yeah. They're falling off the stage. They're hurting themselves. Every one of them. Tom Hamilton, the bass player, Brad Whitford, the, uh, one of the guitarists, Joe Perry, the lead guitarist, Steven Tyler, of course, the frontman, have all been taken out of a tour for one reason or another early on in their career yeah. by drug, drug abuse. Yep. Um, but later on in their career, just sort of injuring themselves and falling <laughs> and getting sick. And, and, and Joey Kramer is the latest. Now, years ago, he was in some incident in the South Shore, I think like a... He was getting gas. At a, oh, the at gas the, incident! Like the gas yeah, tank, tank blew up or something. Yeah, he almost died. I remember that. That was sometime in the nineties. Yeah. God bless him. But he's he he has suffered some injuries and he was in a period of recovery. And they're coming up this to the Grammys this weekend, and they've got a couple of big gigs associated with the Grammys. Yeah. And he hasn't been playing in their uh, late re, most recent gigs. He was not. I, I don't believe he was playing during their. Vegas residency. Their, his drum tech, whose name escapes me, 
Um, the guy who, you know, manages his equipment also has to be a skillful drummer to do that. He's standing in for him. And Aerosmith tells Joey Kramer, hey, you know what? Uh, you're not ready to play. Right. And this is a big deal for us. It's the national stage. We can't be. We can't have a drummer who's not ready to play. So come on to the party. Come to the show, but you're not going to play drums. And, and he's like, what, are you kidding me? <laughs> so he files a lawsuit. He files a lawsuit to come to, 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 to you know, uh, force their hand and allow him, make them allow him to play drums. Play, yeah. They sent him, you know, they, they made him audition by tape, which is very, very <laughs> denigrate, very humiliating, right? Yes. And um, long story short, this case goes before a judge. I guess there was injunctive relief that was sought because the Grammys is this weekend. Yes. And the judge ruled in the rest of the band's favor. He basically said, yeah, the, you know, go back to, go back, hi-hat, snare drum, kick drum. <laughs> Hi hat snit like go back to the go back to the drawing board because you're not you're not good enough anymore. Right. More or less. That's not what he actually said. He right. just ruled that there's not adequate practice time. Right. So enough of my yapping. There it is. I've set the table, Suzanne. This is I find this to be hilarious. Um, because now now in the moment, Aerosmith has hired security to prevent Joey right, from Right, which you just told me this, yes. yes. So when it comes to Aerosmith, there's a couple things that I uh, that come to mind. One is just a general: why is it there? There are so many bands that have so much infighting. Like so many of the most famous bands um, in you know rock and roll history have like these epic decades long feuds. It, why? It, 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 it's true not to go on a tangent, but the Kinks famously yeah. and they're yeah. Strong, and they're brothers. Tour. They hate each yeah, other. Yeah, can't stand each I other. Know. They're planning a reunion tour, but you're absolutely right. All kinds of infighting yeah. with bands, uh, with, with lots of bands, but particularly uh, this one. It's it's pretty amazing. So the second thing, and this is one of these, and I'm I should preface it by saying I'm not um, a huge Aerosmith fan, nor am I a big like Aerosmith hater. But I've often wondered if the argument could be made that they could be considered the best. Um, sorry, my phone went off. Uh, the best American rock band. Now, because when you think of what you they of can... Time? Of all time? Because when you think of what the, are considered the best rock bands of all time, they're all British. So I, I, I've said, you, could you make the argument that Aerosmith, from a longevity perspective, um, and from you know, a hits perspective, it could be the, considered the greatest American rock band? I think people could make that case. I'm not saying I'm making that case. I, I, I'm just would, would, putting would, it out there. I would, uh, I would find that case to be wrong. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't agree with that. I like Aerosmith. Yeah. I, I don't love everything about Aerosmith. No, I, and, and they're one of those bands, um, uh, particularly because they're a Boston band, that I'm like, all right. Right. You kind of have to I, like I, them. I, yeah, but yeah. also there's enough already. Yeah, uh, yeah right. Know? Yes. Um, and and they're, they're very, very, very heavily exposed uh, <laughs> slash overexposed to some degree. Um, I live, and, and their classic early stuff yeah. is 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 classic, great. Right? Yeah, and, and 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 some of their more recent more recent stuff is excellent too. And they're and they're great. I've seen them in concert; they're great. I, I I would lean elsewhere, and I don't want to like make the discussion all over the place. I would probably you know, American rock band. Yeah, you know, I would lean toward like 
Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, may he rest in peace. Sure, I, yes. The Almond Brothers Band was a favorite of mine, but they're probably mm -hmm. not in mainstream enough. But well, Tom uh, Petty probably is. And then you, some people might say, uh, sorry, what about Pearl Jam? What about, yeah. you know... So, well, and someone once made the argument to me, though I Metallica, what about, you know. right? It one, someone once made the argument to me many, many years ago, and I, I think you could argue this about whether or not they're actually rock. But uh, the Beach Boys now are one of our colleagues' is a huge fan. He would love that argument. I'm but, actually you glad know. you brought that up because the Beach Boys 100 percent yeah. were America's answer to the Beatles because, right? Um, you know, Brian Wilson is is one of the one of the greatest songwriters of all time. Right. And and I I, I don't disagree that they're in a, in the conversation right. as they say on sports radio. Um, so <laughs> just like Tom Brady. But yeah, very, no, very good insights. <laughs> Getting back to this. Yes, though, back to the feud. Um, and no, it, it, and look, I feel like like the Cars had the right kind of Boston band yes, career. I agree. We, you know, when, in the passing of Rick Ocasek, we really had this period of appreciating them again, and they just they, they had their career and. And then they had this resurgence in the 90s, right. and, and we learned about that, that he did that sort of so his children could see what he did for right. a living. It was really cool. And then they just faded. Right. As they probably Or they should. went into the business. Like, well, they, I, the, yeah, like yeah, yeah, they became yeah. producers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, but Aaron Smith is still, still rock, and that's great. So now this, now this, <laughs> this feud happens, and uh, I don't know. I, I, I love music. I never watch the Grammys. I just don't. It's, see. I, I don't love the show. I do. I don't. Because, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm, music has never been my big thing. Like, right. I've never been someone who's sort of, you know how there's always those people who are like, oh, I'm, uh, you know, music is my life. That was never who I am. Yeah. So I watch the Grammys in order to keep myself somewhat current. While understanding that the Grammys themselves are not current, but there are a number of acts that I'm like, oh, I have no idea who these people are, but I watch the Grammys once a year and I get to see them. So, so the, I do watch it. I mean, this just seems like the ultimate both Aerosmith and Grammy story. Like, there's always chaos around Aerosmith and there's always chaos around the Grammys. A couple of years ago, Adele was performing... Uh, you know, a tribute to George Michael, and she stopped in the middle of the live broadcast in order to restart it because she felt like she was messing up. It just seems like it's part and parcel of the legend of what the Grammys does, as yeah. well as Aerosmith. Well, I got to tell you, I'll def I'm definitely watching now <laughs> because I want to see what happens and if if they let him in the building and and you know if there's if there are like you know free Joey Kramer signs or whatever it may be. But it's pretty funny, and um, and it's only gotten more dramatic to the point where they feel like they have to prevent him from entering the building. While we're talking about rock and roll, I just want to say one additional thing. Please. Uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announcements were a couple of weeks ago, and it is criminal, criminal, that Pat Benatar is no, not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She was not voted in this year. Uh, a number of people were, including Whitney Houston, who I have no problem with, but... There could have been Whitney Houston and Pat Benatar. You could have actually voted for two women act artists in this year, and they didn't do it, and it's just a shame. Well, but she will have future eligibility. Yes, she will have future eligibility. But she was on the ballot this year, so Correct. eligible. And her first album came out in 1978. Like yeah. she should have been in. A while ago. Uh, yeah, 15 yeah. years ago. You yeah, know, that's you know, that's uh, you know, pop, pop rock yes. of the um, uh, early 80s. Yes, it's all right there. Yeah, exactly. Pat Benatar. Hell is for children. That's right. It's right? A, she's Hit a great. Hit me with your best shot. Hit me with your best shot. Love is a battlefield classic. Love is a battlefield. <laughs> um, her guitar player was awesome, and the solo in Hit Me With Your Best Shot yeah. is one of the great 80s pop rock yeah. guitar solos of all time. 
her and Neil Gerardo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. All right, Suzanne. You see, you're a fountain of information on music. Exactly. Even though your music is, quote, not your thing. Not my thing. All exactly. Right. Thanks a lot. Thanks. That's it for 321GO. Up next, we have an interview with Richard Doherty, president of the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities in Massachusetts. Good morning, Rich. How are you? I'm terrific. How are you? Thank you for Good. having me. Thanks for coming in. Um, joined this morning by Richard Doherty, president of ACOM, which is the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities in Massachusetts. It's a bit of a mouthful, so ACOM it is. ACOM it is. <laughs> uh, so to start, can you just tell us a little bit about ACOM as an association, who you represent, kinds of schools? Sure. Uh, so these are all uh, private, not-for-profit uh, colleges and universities. We have 57 institutions in our membership, and those colleges represent practically every single private college in the state that you ever heard of, um, and a few you may not have heard of. Um, and uh, they represent about 98% of the uh, students attending private college in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts is unique in that we're the only state in the country where more students go to private colleges than public colleges, and really by a significant uh, uh, difference. Almost two-thirds of the bachelor's degrees in uh, Massachusetts, and I think Somewhere in the low 80% of all the graduate degrees in Massachusetts are awarded by our private nonprofit colleges. So these are huge contributors to the Massachusetts educational and economic landscape. And because we know a lot of those students go on to stay here as well. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, many of them are from Massachusetts mm -hmm. to begin with and uh, want to stay here. Massachusetts now has a very hot economy. Uh, and uh, particularly in some of the areas where students want to be uh, at students like being in cities and Boston itself is a, is a hot city so um, we're uh, seeing very strong retention and we're really attracting talent from all over the country and uh, around the world to Massachusetts so this is a very rich resource for, uh, for the state. So what kind of work do you do as the association representing all of these schools? Yeah, so we're sort of a trade association um, and not dissimilar uh, to other trade associations. We have an advocacy responsibility and that's sort of at the federal level, at the state level, and to some extent at the municipal level, but uh, advocating for support for financial aid, advocating for uh, more money for research, that's uh, more at the federal level. Um, and then there are any number of uh, bills that impact, uh, that might impact colleges as employers or as real estate uh, property owners, and that there may be an unintended Im uh, impact in certain bills that get introduced at the state level um, that we have to ex sort of explain that I know this wasn't the intent of this bill, but this could adversely impact our colleges and, and universities. So something that has taken, uh, not taken over, but has really come to the to the forefront uh, is the closure regulations um, that were recently signed by Governor Baker and voted on by the Board of Higher Education earlier this month, uh, came in light of, as everyone knows, what happened a couple of years ago 
was it 2018? Yep. 2018 at Mount Ida, sudden closure. A lot of students, um, you know, suffered really as a, potentially as a result of that. Uh, so there are these new regulations. What do they do? Yeah, we like to refer to them as the financial monitoring uh, regulations. <laughs> um, and I think what they do is that they pr provide a level of confidence for uh, families, uh, for students, and for uh, legislators and regulators um, that there's uh, a system in place now for better early detection of schools that are facing uh, financial challenges. And um, I think that there was a lot of, I think, misinformation that was bandied about post uh, Mount Ida that, that was not handled well, and uh, we don't want to see anything like that uh, repeated. But I think that the uh, number of schools that are uh, deeply at risk are, has been overreported. So part of what this is going to do is allow for there to be, uh, I think, more stability brought to the sector and, uh, and that that'll uh, translate into confidence that uh, families and college counselors and others uh, will, uh, will have. What does it mean for the colleges and how, how will what they do or report, how will that be different than what it was before in terms well, of what, to your point, students and families are, are seeing? Yeah, so the, the, uh, there are sort of three pieces uh, that have uh, been acted upon or are in the process of being acted upon. So the legislature uh, d did a very good and thoughtful, went through a very good and thoughtful process to develop legislation um, that spelled out a few responsibilities that would be new. So that the Department of Higher Education, um, working uh, closely and collaboratively with the uh, regional accrediting body that uh, basically has responsibility for um, telling the federal government these colleges are, are operating well and they're serving their students and they're deserving of federal financial aid. So that's sort of that uh, that's the New England uh, Commission on, on Higher Education, and that um, that uh, body will now take on some of the responsibility of taking a look at the financials of all uh, private colleges um, in the uh, uh, Commonwealth, and where there are schools that may have some. Um, risks, they identify those risks and they will work collaboratively with DHE to figure out how to deal with those risks. Um, but I think that uh, uh, that's, you know, so that's a piece. There is a piece that uh, calls for the education um, and training, if you will, of uh, members of the boards of trustees of all uh, colleges in Massachusetts, public and private. Uh, alike, and I think that there was a feeling that uh, it's important for uh, trustees who have a fiduciary responsibility to uh, to the institution and to the uh, people served by the institution that they need to be well aware of what those responsibilities entail in terms of knowledge and the financials of a, a particular school. So that's a, an important piece. And it then it also calls, uh, from a public transparency perspective, the posting on colleges' websites 
of their uh, financial statements. And now that's something that is already submitted to a public agency, to the Attorney General's office. But I think that the... Uh, uh, the and made available if people had ever requested them, correct. which people don't think about. Right. But it, it was um, and I think, th- I think it's uh, rather than having to go to a, a state agency, I think there was a feeling like the schools need to be posting these mm-hmm. to make them readily accessible to uh, um, parents that are, are concerned. But I think, you know, I think one of the things that uh, uh, came out of last year's um, uh, work on this issue was that, uh, you know, the bond rating agency Moody's uh, basically uh, came out with a report that said about 1% of private colleges in in the country are um, apt to run into difficulties that may result in their closure, closure or merger. So uh, we have about 1,400 um, private not-for-profit uh, colleges in the United States. So 1% of them is 14. Mm-hmm. So that's a spread across 50 states. So I think that uh, the, the notion that there is going to be, uh, you know, willy-nilly closures of colleges in Massachusetts is um, overstated, <laughs> to say the least. To hear the full interview with Rich Doherty, check out OA on Air Extra on SoundCloud. And now, two minutes with Tom. Hi, Tom. Hey, Cayenne. How are you? I'm good. How are week, you? Week 78. 77, I'm getting whispered in the ear. 77. <laughs> Seventy-seven. Don't wish your life away. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Ashley. <laughs> Week 77, a lot happening. Um, there's so much to choose from to talk about today. But uh, in the wake of impeachment starting this week in the Senate, and uh, the, but the New York Times editorialized this week for the Democratic ticket um, and for perhaps the first time ever endorsed two candidates. Yeah, two women candidates. Two women candidates. Yeah, one... Uh, one left of center and the other moderate. And mm-hmm. um, Amy Elizabeth Warren. Yes, and Amy Klobuchar. Yes. Um, Amy Klobuchar being the moderate, of course, and Elizabeth Warren being, you know, out on the uh, perceived to be out on the left. Um, and it's 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 a very strange thing to do. Um, and, and I think it was almost an answer by the New York Times to nominate or to put the names of two women as their favorites for the nomination for the presidency of the United States. It was almost picking up on the earlier discussion that, um, you know, the diverse leaders of America were having about all the, 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 the diverse uh, black or, or, uh, or uh, Latin or, or uh, Asian faces are no longer on that debate stage. We have women left. And it was almost a cry to say, you know, it cannot always be white males leading the charge here. Let's have some balance. And, and I think that's what they were struggling to do. Whether they did it or not, and whether the, whether the weight that the New York Times endorsement carries mm-hmm. is as great as it was 20, 30, or 40 years ago, I dare say it is not. But it was a message. It was symbolic. And I think they think it was important. And yeah. so we'll see what impact it has. It can be measured, and we'll figure it out. The other story, of course, is not, not only the impeachment proceedings going on in the U.S. Senate this week, which are going along party lines, and I think to nobody's surprise, 
The other story is that Iowa is, is less than two weeks away now. Mm-hmm. The Iowa caucuses are less than two weeks away. And New Hampshire's New Hampshire close follows that, that following week, and that's, you know, three weeks away. We're going to have a pretty good picture within the, in the month of February as to who the nominee for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination is going to go to. Um, kind of excited. Kind I'm of ready. excited. I think if you look at the <laughs> Suffolk, the Suffolk, the Globe Suffolk poll or the Suffolk University Globe poll, um, which was really a, you know, a, a, a shot, a film shot of what's going on in New Hampshire right now. Over the last weeks, Elizabeth Warren has dropped four points. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden has picked up three points. Bernie Sanders is leading the pack as a, you know, as a U.S. senator from the neighboring state of, of Vermont. Interestingly, what is is not reflected at all, um, and, and Pete Buttigieg is is the is the I think third uh, in line, where Elizabeth Warren is now running fourth in New Hampshire. Now it depends on what happens in the caucuses the, the prior week. Mm-hmm. If, if Elizabeth Warren, you know, garners support more support than anybody else, it's going to help her in New Hampshire. Yep. The same for Pete uh, Buttigieg and the same for for Joe Biden as well as uh, Bernie Sanders. I think they're the top tier, and I think one of them is going to emerge. For after New Hampshire, you have two things going on. South Carolina, which uh, becomes you know, kind of a staggering wall for people who are not acclimated or, or wanted by, I'm going to call it the African community, the black African community, because that's what, what the South Carolina vote is going to be. So the story is going to be told in the next, in the next three to four weeks as to who the nomination is going to go to. It's, it's kind of a fascinating time. Impeachment going on the one hand, it should be over by that time. But, but Amy Klobuchar is tied up. Amy Klobuchar in, is in tied DC up as right is, now. As is, it's right, as is Bernie Sanders, as is yeah. Elizabeth Warren. They're all they're all presiding jurists in in the Senate um, impeachment proceedings. But we'll see what happens. It should be over by by Iowa. It may not be, but it, it should be over by Iowa. Um, there's a, there's a question in my mind as to how many. How much of Americans are paying attention to the impeachment proceedings at all? I think without any kind of witnesses coming in to discredit the democratic process yeah. or to unsettle the Republicans in the U.S. Senate and what their process is, I think people are just going to go away and they're not going to have any more stronger feelings than they currently do, which is almost nothing, surprisingly. Well, and in the, uh, the Suffolk Globe poll, they're all within the margin of error. So um, they're all so close. I think it was like two or three points that really right. separated them. And uh, Dave Paleologos, who's the head of the uh, polling center at Suffolk, actually, I believe, was quoted saying, because it's so close within the margin of error, what we're looking at is it's really going to see who's shining that day, like who's who's up, who's down by topic or whatever happens to be going on. Mm-hmm. It's almost to a point of happenstance a little bit as to what some how sort of the dice rolls out a little bit yeah. when you're when you're that close, when it's a few points within the margin of error separating you from the person behind you. Kind of still anyone's game in terms of that top four. Yeah. Those three states, and again, the California primaries uh, going, but they're, they're kind of a rollout, if you will. Mm-hmm. So a lot's going to be told here, and we're going to have a pretty good picture as to what rural America wants, what, um, you know, what, what suburban America wants, uh, what a more diverse America wants, and um, we're going to get an urban vote in here too. It's it's going to be pretty pretty fascinating. Do you want to make any predictions? Uh, too early for me. I mean, if I if I were forced to say or be asked who today will win the nomination, I'd have to say Joe Biden because mm-hmm. he's leading the primaries. He's leading across America in state after state after yes. state. 
So the question comes back, well, how well organized is Joe Biden in, in the state of Iowa for those caucuses? Well, they tell me he's supposed to be pretty well organized. We're going to find out. Yep. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Brian. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Don't forget to subscribe, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.